They called us monsters, so monsters we became. We are Monsters Out of the Closet. I'm Nicole. And I'm Shreya. Hello, monstrous listeners. This is your producer, Nicole. My co-producer, Shreya, is out this month with a cold that stole her voice. And I've been recovering from a concussion, so thanks for bearing with our production delays. This month, we examine the true nature of creatures, both the monstrous and the magical. From the folk legends you might know, to the denizens of worlds beyond our imagination, our episode Creatures is a celebration of the strange and the unique, the natural and the supernatural. In our first tale, creatures of fantastic origin are embroiled in political strife. The brutal rulers of their society force these creatures to contend with their nature, their magic, and how far they're willing to bend both for love. Song of Serena was written by Lindsay Holt and read by Rachel Shaw. Mora, Grand Sorceress of the Royal Court, gazed out into the arena from the small alcove that had been her holding cell for three days now. On the far side of the arena's raised platform, Mora could see a dais set with two thrones on it, awaiting the king and his mate. Above that, surrounding the whole structure, were rows and rows of viewing spots. Hundreds of people crowded into those spaces, scales flashing, fins and tails creating dizzying currents as equines jostled each other for space. Most of the audience were gliders, like Mora herself, with whip-like stingray tails and leathery wings that extended out from their arms, undulating as they glided through the water. There were also a few blade tails, a militant race with sandpaper skin and shark fins on their spines. They had come a long way to get here from their native waters. Bloodthirsty politicians, she thought. Rumours of the type of ceremony to be performed here must have been quite gruesome indeed. Mora winced as the ridge along the back of her tail scraped against the rock behind her. A wealth of silver bound her to that rock. They had lashed her to it with layers of silver chains, covered her neck with thin silver chokers, and had even made her drink some silver in a potion before coming out here. Ridiculous. People were still convinced that regular silver kept Mora captive and mute, insulting. She let out a hiss of disgust. Mora was suddenly aware of one particular strand of silver at her throat. This was the piece that had been hexed by their high priest and added to her collection of collars that morning. It seemed warmer now, all of a sudden, and possibly... was it tighter? The loop of metal stayed tight against a vein in her neck, making her light-headed. She moved, the pain in her back reduced to numbness. Mora wondered how well the priest controlled this device. At the far end of the arena's raised platform, King Bore and his mate seated themselves on the dais. A young proclaimer swam up beside them and began to read, Hear ye all, the proclamation of the king. In the blessed eye of the goddess of the deep, with power granted by his majesty, King Bore, first guardian of the sea mount, 
A sharp clang sounded right beside Mora's head as the guard took his knife to her bonds. One arm fell free. The guard held it at the wrist, then released the other arm and bound her hands behind her back. Feeling rushed into her fingers as they collided behind her, hundreds of hot needle pricks making her gasp in pain. She shut her eyes and tried to cry out. No sound came. The strand of silver at her neck grew warm again. The guard yanked on a chain wrapped around her middle, pulling her into the harsh stadium lights. Mora, once grand sorceress of the royal court, was bound with arms and fins pinned to her sides. Her dark red hair was tangled and unkempt, and she had to swing her black-tipped tail twice as fast as her guards to keep herself steady as they dragged her along. Her eyes raked the dais. The king sat there, grieving for the death of his son, a death he blamed on Mora, after all she'd done for him, for his family. The dark spells and ruins she'd found in the princeling's room after he died told her more than his family could stomach. They couldn't accept what he might have been doing, so they offered her up, a sacrifice for his honourable reputation. The choker pinched again. The sensation shocked Mora, and she realised she had been thinking through spells of escape, of combat. She forced herself to relax her muscles, trying to make room for the tightening silver around her neck. They reached the centre of the arena, and guards began lashing Mora to a pole that had been fastened to the floor. The proclaimer was finishing up. As punishment, the convicted shall be given over to the ministrations of the priesthood to be divested of her powers and abilities until all of the goddess's blessing has been taken from her body, where it has been so terribly misused. Praise to the goddess, may judgment flow from the deep. A swell of noise rose from the gallery. The choker tightened. Far below the seamount plateau, Bright lavender scales flashed in the darkness. Nadia moved quickly, darting from shadow to shadow toward the hidden cave she'd once shed in secret with the grand sorceress of the Seamount. It would be home to both of them again, she told herself, if Mora survived what they did to her. Nadia never intended to go to the ceremony. She'd dressed for it, though. Her indigo hair sparkled with sapphires, and the violet tips of her tail had been lightly coated with metallic dust. She'd gone to all the pre-ceremony parties, flitting in between groups of friends so none of them would know which group she ended up going with. Slipping away from them was always easy. The cauldron was bubbling when Nadia entered the cave. A giant crystal filled the bottom of the pot, imbued with layers of Mora's spells. Nadia stirred the cauldron, as she'd been told to do. The massive crystal began to glow. The light brightened and dimmed in a gentle rhythm, as if it were breathing. She checked her list again. Everything had to be in place. Mora had insisted this next part could not be done before the crystal had reached its zenith, when it should dissolve completely. Her hand was shaking. A wave of exhaustion washed over Nadia, followed by a spike of fear as she realised what was happening. She glanced down at her bracelet, a gift from Mora, a talisman. It began to glow slowly, too slowly, pulsing like the crystal. Nadia felt a bit of her strength returning. She closed her eyes 
braced herself, then opened them and turned to face what was behind her. A slim girl stared at her from around the corner of a bookcase. Her light yellow hair had been recently chopped to get some of its worst tangles out. She studied Nadia with pale green eyes. When is mother coming back? she asked. Nadia attempted to smile in a friendly way. She turned back to the pot to stir it, keeping the girl in her line of sight. Soon enough, she said. Where have you been hiding? I wasn't hiding. The girl stayed next to the bookcase, watching her. Nadia reminded herself that this was a child, a lost, confused child, who'd come to their home looking for her mother and latched onto Mora. She couldn't help, whatever she was. She touched her bracelet. It was warm now, and she could tell her strength was back. She kept the girl on the other side of the cauldron, anyway. No one had ever seen a divestment ceremony before, except the lunatics behind the walls of the Soren Temple. Even Mora couldn't figure out quite how it worked. Divestment. She ran through it all again, thinking through the spells she'd set on the crystal to attract her magical gift as it left her body. The choker burned against her neck, yanking her thoughts away from magic. She let out a hiss, the only noise she could make right now. A life without her gift. It could not be. There was no life there. A chime sounded from somewhere behind her. Mora felt the currents change. Soren priests wearing loose wrappings of blue and grey fabric swam into her line of sight from left and right, circling her. They chanted, their voices rising and falling as they moved. Mora was buffeted by the current they made with their bodies. A dissonant note rose in their chanting, high and keening, grating at her nerves. Could everyone hear this? She gritted her teeth. The sound seemed to sear straight into her brain. Pain pulsed behind her right eye. The band of hexed silver burned at her neck. The chanting swelled, then quieted. The priests spread their winged arms and moved back and away from the centre stage. The audience hushed. Mora stared forward, trying to swallow against the choker. In a doorway to the right of the dais, the priest appeared. Serena, the blessed, leader of the Soren temple priests, flowed towards Mora, silver hair streaming behind her in a single braid matching the side-to-side -side motion of her silver tail. She wore a blue wrap, the same shade as the tips of her fins, with end pieces that crossed her chest, rippling over her shoulders and down her back. Mora watched Serena approach the centre of the stage. The choker thrummed at her neck, possibly recognising its creator. The cult leader swam in a wide circle, allowing everyone in the audience to view her from all angles. Mora hissed again. Completing her circle, the priest drew up close to the once grand sorceress, looked her in the eye and smiled, almost kindly. Then she raised her eyes to the high waters and began to sing. The first single note hung in the arena, a perfect crystal sound. It grew into a wordless melody. The priest swayed, ringing the two figures, and began chanting again, creating a rhythmic structure beneath the song. 
Maura stiffened. Sudden agony gripped her body, pain running through her veins as if her blood were boiling. Her head jerked upwards, the pain behind her eye exploding, blinding. She realized she'd been screaming. It could have been seconds or hours. Her body and mind flew apart. Time was forgotten, everything forgotten. I don't like it. Then don't help me. Mora. Nadia reached out and held Mora's arm as she swam past. It was two days until the ceremony, and possibly the last night they had together. It would be nearly impossible to sneak her out of the holding cell again, but Mora had barely looked at her. She'd been darting around the cave madly, pulling down potions, double-checking the blue crystals she'd been growing to make sure they were still growing, Nadia guessed. There was nothing more to do to them, but she kept touching the Mignoi. Now she stopped, glancing at her arm where Nadia held it. Her expression softened. Nadia, she said quietly, what would you have me do instead? Nadia gripped Mora's arm harder. You could escape, she said, as if it were the first time she'd suggested this. Mora sighed. Yes, Nadia, and go where? she asked. I leave the sacred mount, I am disconnected from the goddess, and I lose my power. I go through with this punishment, I lose my power as well. And you could die. Or I could live, said Mora, and regain what I lost. You follow the plan, you keep that child safe, I can get all of it back again. Her gaze grew cold and distant, then others will die instead. Nadia knew all this. They had been through this exact conversation so many times, but she needed it again. Anything to keep Mora talking to her, facing her, to keep her with her. They were almost out of time. So Nadia said her next part. But if we leave, at least we could live. My life is here, cried Mora, shaking her arm free. This is our home, my home. This is my gift. I will not simply give up what is mine. She paused, looking at Nadia. She put a hand to her cheek. I will come back to you, my love, she said. We will have everything. Everything. You will never know fear again. She kissed her, long and deep, all their planning momentarily forgotten. Nadia pulled herself against Moore's body and tried her hardest to believe her. Nadia shook herself free of her memories. The glowing crystal was no more, completely dissolved in the mixture she'd been stirring. This was it then. It was time. She picked up a red sponge, squeezed it, and thrust it into the shining liquid. When she pulled it out again, it was glowing with the solution it absorbed. Nadia stared at the power in her hands, fascinated. Shay, sweetie, she said. Can you come here? I'm here. Nadia looked up. The girl had come right up to the cauldron in complete silence. Nadia steadied herself, then held out the sponge. Drink up, little one, she said. Your mother needs your help with this part. She needs you to have this. So drink up, okay? Shay looked at Nadia for a long moment, expression unreadable. Nadia forced herself not to look away. Finally, 
the little girl took the sponge. She held it to her lips and started drinking. Her eyes grew wide. A feral hunger burned in them, like nothing Nadia had ever seen. Shay sucked down the liquid from the sponge, then started toward the cauldron as if to get more. No! Nadia reached out and almost touched her, then caught herself. I have to do that part, Shay. Mora, your mother said I had to do it. You stay over here, okay? The girl looked at her, lips curling. Nadia flinched. You... You want to do what mother says, right? Right, Shay? Shay blinked. She backed up a bit, then held out the sponge. Nadia tried to keep her hand from shaking. She took the sponge carefully, filled it, and brought it back. Each time she handed it to the girl, Shay would practically rip it from her fingers, desperate for the next drop of Mora's magic. Her pale eyes turned dark emerald green and seemed to glow in the dim light of the cave. Even her skin seemed to take on more colour. Nadia gripped the ragged sponge and wiped up the last bits of glowing liquid from the pot. All the light in the room was gone replaced by a dull green glow that seemed to lift off the little girl's scales. Shay squeezed the sponge of all it had. Her bright eyes snapped open, locked on Nadia. She took the sponge from her mouth, and for the first time Nadia had seen, she grinned. Mother will be happy with me, won't she? In our second piece, we have two poems from accomplished crime fiction author Richard Stevenson from a series he calls Cryptid Shindig. These quirky pieces play with rhythm and pay homage to some of our most beloved beasties. These poems are read by Janine Carmel, and we begin with Tahoe Tessie and end with Van Meter Monster. This is Tahoe Tessie. Tahoe Tessie ain't no cryptid serpent poser. She undulates. Don't wiggle like a snake. Her first trout polluted toxic human prey. She might overturn your boat if you insist on fishing amid the school of trout she's chasing for dinner, though. She has a bad-ass reputation, being 30 to 60 feet long and as big around as a telephone pole. But no, she's cool. Don't want to hurt anyone. Probably wouldn't even retaliate if you bounced a beer can off her pate. But don't try it. Even prehistoric critters have their limits, though she probably won't let you get anywhere near close enough to balk her. She's camera shy, too would rather retire to her underwater lair beneath cave rock than pose for any shutterbug crew. Remember, she don't care what genus or species you want to tag her with. Don't do tumble turns or interviews either. She's content to hang in Lake Tahoe among the myriad of fishes she feeds on, but don't want any unnatural competition. The less she has to do with us, the better. Peacock patterns on the surface from spilled gasoline don't do it for her either. So, 
if she pokes her head up too close to your boat for a tete-a-tete with you. Read her pepsodent pearls with a smile. Maybe give her a wave or tip your hat. Don't start thinking of tranquilizer guns and nets. Fet your own. Leave her alone. This is Van Meter Monster. Another Batman with a horn. Not the kind to toot his ego on, but an actual animal horn that shot rays at townsfolk more than a hundred years ago. Why the town of Van Meter? Why not? What did the locals do to earn this visit? Probably nothing. But folks still remember the week the strange creature wreaked havoc and still have no answers to the mystery. Did it squeak through some portal in the known universe? Or just crawl out of the cave the men with guns chased it back to? Either way, it entered and came back with a juvenile, nonplussed. Bullets didn't seem to face it or the baby, so, of course, we humans staked out the cave and brought bigger guns. Blasted away when Ma and daughter returned at dawn the next day. Of course, no one's seen him since. Did they sneak through a portal from some other time or dimension? Wonder what they'd have to say about our dreadful and leadful reception. Badass, hairless, hominid banditos live here? Folks say the cryptids could zip up and down power poles aided by their beaks could hop forty feet in three hops, easily clear a five-foot fence. Bat-winged kangaroo asylum seekers from some other time-slash-space dimension didn't actually eat or attack anyone. Maybe left disappointed in the rude ways of homo sapiens, chose another planet to inhabit, or chose hollow earth over Iowa. In our last piece, we encounter a forest filled with both familiar and unfamiliar creatures, where some are not all they appear. Hunting Season was written by me, Nicole Kaland, and is read by Julian Lopez. Please be advised that this piece contains elements of body horror and gore. You feel them before you hear them. You still have the taste of berries on your tongue, the musty aroma of earth and growth, but slowly, there's a sinking sensation in your gut, burning under your skin, the hairs on your neck creeping up, then the snap of a twig. Your body tenses. The wrong thing to do. You know you know now, but with the element of surprise gone, that leaves only one thing. The hunt. Your vision sharpens. Your heart races, and you only have enough time to think, run, before a bang, the explosion of the tree bursting beside your head, too close. And then there's wood incredible in your eyes, but you're already off, darting towards your home, deeper into the woods. You know this route, you remind yourself, blinking quickly to dislodge the splinters. If you keep running, you can get these outsiders off your trail in the familiar, darker parts of the wood. Your eyes are clearer now. The irritant's mostly gone, and now the trees close in. The spaces between them thinning, and the leaves sucking up more and more light 
from the setting sun. Branches and bramble snags in your hair, but you can barely notice anything over the sound of people rushing after you, weapons in hand. There's the fallen log. You leap over it, and then you crest a hill to higher ground. Two more shots fire, but miss you. You're moving too erratically to be an easy target. Good. Keep moving. You're over the hill, moving down again. Your limbs bursting with exhaustion as you flit this way and that, slinking into shadows. The sun cannot touch you down here, or those people now. The eerie cracks of pale moonlight work their way down the tree line and through the canopy of leaves. Darkness cut the moonlight, just how you like it, and your eyes shift to adjust. Your ears perk up. A voice rolls down from the hill. Around this way. More shouts. You go left. Stay straight. You circle right. Good. Split up. You have the advantage now. There's a man, 20 meters on your left, rifle outstretched. Breathing deeply, you smell a faint odor of artificial spice, sweat, and behind it, the tangy metallic scent of blood and meat just below flesh. He whistles. Once. Twice. Either little Bambi, you can come out, no need to be afraid. He's right, there is no need to be afraid. Your skin tightens, then relaxes. You step forward, careful not to make a sound. You feel your blood pounding, feel each pulse rushing through your body, pushing, spreading, the energy coiling and buzzing under your skin. Your hoofed foot crunches on dry leaves. The gun swivels. You step into a patch of moonlight, face to face with the armed man. The man smirks, cocking the rifle. Looks like we've got venison on the menu tonight after all. From behind him, a voice asks if anyone has the deer in their sight. The man turns to call back that, yeah, it's over here. That was a mistake. There is no deer here. In the moment that the man turns to reply, you let the air in your lungs out through the nostrils at the tip of your snout, and as you do so, you push and contort your thrumming loose skin. Your front hooves stretch into vicious pincers as another set of limbs press out, then emerge, grasping from your torso. The soft bristles of your fur recede, leaving a tough, leathery hide, difficult to pierce. Your ears twitch and shudder as their skin there extends more open, more curved. Your snout lengthens as your mouth widens, teeth sharpening and wolf-like fangs descending. A clicking escapes your throat. The man turns back as your limbs swell in size and bend at new angles, your back legs bracing to support your body as your torso snaps upright. The gun shakes in his hands now, your huge shadow looming blocking the moonlight over him. Your middle arm reaches for the gun, gripping as your pincers tighten and crush the metal. The man yelps, but then you yank the gun, pulling the man close to you into your two middle arms. As you lift him off the ground, you can smell the bitterness and bile in his throat, the sour stench of urine down his legs. Come now, little Bambi. No need to be afraid. Your pincers close on his neck and snap. It's over, just like that. 
a wet thud and warmth dripping down your legs, glistening almost black in the moonlight, your tongue lolling and wet with hunger, but you drop the body. The hunt isn't over. Your fleshy ears vibrate as you hear the footsteps around you. Three more sets, two on your left, closing in, one further back. You slink back into the shadows and circle around to one of the two closest hunters. You grab him and in one motion swing him against the solid trunk of a tree. There's just the grunt when you grab him, the crack of his neck on the heavy impact, and the stillness of his broken body on the forest floor. You're already cloaked by trees and shadow by the time the second climber whoops around. Chris, are you alright? Chris! Shit! Dennis! Dennis, where'd you go? Did you get the damn deer? He's heading towards the glimmer of moonlight ahead, and you watch, waiting. He screams at the sight of the carnage that bolts, but he runs the wrong way. He runs right into you. You have him now and are pulling, but he keeps screaming and screaming until there is the sound of flesh ripping and wet splatting below. You drop his legs and waist first, then his torso and head next. Your ears strain to catch the last set of footsteps, and your snout sucks in air, seeking a trail of odor to follow. The wind whistles gently, an owl hoots, insects buzz, and after a moment, yes, you have it. Footsteps are faint and far away, running back the way they came. There is fear in the air guiding you as you run swiftly after him. You hear a crack, a shout, and a thud. He's tripped on a log, likely broken his ankle. He's not going anywhere. You crest the hill and look down at the hunter, his gun a few meters too far to grab. You descend the hill slowly. With each step, your hunger grows deeper until your stomach is nearly roaring with anticipation. You retract your pincers, your arms, your ears and snout shrink and your fur grows back. Short and stiff, but still soft. You keep your teeth, though. Man's eyes are wide as saucers, tears shimmering in the moonlight. He tries to drag himself backwards away from you, but your hoof foot presses down where his ankle is most swollen. He screams, and his other leg kicks at you, but to no avail. Step delicately around his flailing leg and use your front legs to pin his arms down. Once you move motion, you crane your elegant neck down and quickly tear the man's throat apart with your teeth. Warm, tangy blood smearing along your snout, you enjoy the first of the spoils from your hunt. Chewing, your wolfish mouth forms the closest thing to human smirka as you think. Yes, this is going to be a good hunting season. You have been listening to Monsters Out of the Closet. Thank you to Lindsay Holt and Richard Stevenson for your pieces, and to Rachel Shaw, Janine Carmel, and Julian Lopez for your readings. To find out more about these pieces, our artists, and our readers, visit our website, monstersoutofthecloset.com. In honor of Pride Month, our next episode, Liberate, will be released June 26th. 
we are currently seeking submissions for our July through September themed episodes and our October Halloween collection, where all themes and pieces are welcome. We also accept standalone submissions that don't fit specific themes for inclusion in future episodes. You can learn more about submission details, deadlines, and voice acting opportunities on our website's submit page. Stay up to date with all of our podcast news through monstersoutofthecloset.tumblr.com and at pod underscore monsters on Twitter. Lastly, please don't forget to rate and review us on Apple iTunes. We do not invest any money or time to advertising, so your endorsements really help get the podcast discovered by new listeners. Thanks for being part of the Monster Mob, and we'll be back in your feed soon. Monsters out.